Good morning, everyone. We are in the book of Ecclesiastes and the fourth chapter. And as we've done at the beginning of every sermon through the book of Ecclesiastes, we've started with this sentence that we are memorizing. And each week I am taking a word away so that we would memorize this in full. So let's recite this together. And um, I'll, give you the, I'll give you the word, all right? Just to, to start us off on the even, even playing field. The word is biblical. All right? So let's recite this all together on the count of three. One, two, three. Wisdom is correctly applied biblical knowledge. It has nothing to do with age. It has nothing to do with life experiences. It has nothing to do with wealth. It has nothing to do with education or how smart someone is. Wisdom, from God's perspective, is always about his word and applying it rightly to our lives. And when we do that, when we take direction from God's word and believe it, trust in it, apply it, and live it, all of a sudden, the challenges that others in life face, we can look at it and say, I know exactly what God is doing here. He's calling you to get rid of bitterness and revenge and forgive. He's asking you to stop anger and put in place of that love. Instead of getting back and getting even, he's asking you to be merciful. See, God always communicates to us our heart, our soul, our spirit, what is needed to be applied from his word. And it's his word that we get direction from. And we've been seeing this through the entirety of the book of Ecclesiastes so far. And rightly so, the book of Ecclesiastes can be seen as kind of depressing. If you look at it from a worldly perspective, it is incredibly depressing because everything that Solomon has to say has been said before. Life is hard. Life really is hard. Life is not going to get easier. Doesn't matter if you have money or wealth or prestige or honor or beauty, you're going to die. And you can't take any of it with you. And guess how long this is going to last? Day after day after day. Generation after generation will come, take your stuff, change it, and they'll die. And the next generation will come, take your stuff, change it, and they'll die. There's not a change in that cycle under the sun from a human perspective without God. It is vanity. It is meaningless. It is fruitless. There should be no surprise to the believer that the world, those without Christ, have no joy, no peace, no hope. I know they have no joy, no peace, no hope. I know there is nothing that comforts them on the deathbed. They can ignore it all they want. They can say there is no God. They can trust in their riches. They can trust in their good works, and it will accomplish nothing because they take nothing with them when they die except their relationship with God. And as an unbeliever, their relationship with God, as we will see today, is clearly not as a father who is loving and patient and kind and generous and forgiving, but he is indeed 
a strict, by-the-book judge. Now, I told you last week that Solomon kind of took us to the pinnacle of his depressing moment that, hey, we're all going to die and there's nothing we can do about it and someone's going to take our stuff and change it and they'll die. I mean, that's kind of a real depressing outlook on life. As a, someone without Christ, it is indeed their only outlook that they'll have. But in this chapter, chapter 3, Solomon does something wonderful in his expression of wisdom. Is he communicates to us through God himself. And he mentions the word God, his name, eight times in this chapter. Because the believer has a completely different worldview and understanding of that repetitive cycle of life. We still go through the same things. We toil, we work, we get married, we work, we work, we work, we work, we pay taxes, we work, we work, we die. The believer still goes through those same things, just like the unbeliever, but there's a difference. The difference is one of perspective and understanding. The difference is one of living with wisdom versus living for yourself, relying upon your own thoughts or even the wisdom and thoughts of others or the education of others. So while this is still repetitive, drilling that notion home that without God, life is indeed absolutely meaningless. It does not matter what you do because you're going to end up dead before God as a judge. But for the believer, there is differences, and Solomon is going to start to bring that out. And one of the ways that Solomon does this differently in chapter 3 than he's done before is he does it with poetry. Now, for whatever reason, I do not understand some Bible translators. Um, well, this is going to be super, super hard to show. Uh, if you have a real physical Bible, or if you have an app, it's the same thing on there too, you'll notice sometimes uh, the verses are indented. Each verse kind of has its own little indention. And then sometimes it's like chunks of paragraphs that are happening. And the way that the Bible translators determine that is the type of language that is being written. It's either poetic language or historical narrative. And I know those are fancy words that no one really ever needs to pay attention to unless you're in seminary. But basically, when you see verse, 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 think of poetry. And when you turn to the Psalms, you'll see that all, all over. When you turn to the book of Proverbs, you'll see it all over. And sometimes when Christ speaks, you'll see that as well, where each verse is kind of its own little paragraph. And unfortunately, the ESV made the decision not to translate chapter 3 as poetry, only part of it. But the whole chapter, except for like two verses, is actually poetic language and could be put to song very easily. And in fact, people have already put chapter 3 to song. See if you recognize these words. For everything there is a season and a time for every manner under the sun, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and lose, a time to keep, a time to cast away, a time to tear, a time to sow, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, a time for war, and time for peace. Everything has a time and a season. 
And in 1964, well before any of us were born, 1964, we're only learning this through ancient history, 1964, there was a band called the Birds who did not know how to spell the word bird, okay? I, I don't know. I think they were British. Maybe that was, maybe that's how they spelled bird, B-R-Y or B-Y-R-D or something, whatever. What? They had a song, hit song. Does anyone know the name of that song? Turn, turn, turn. And I think that's the first time people memorized Bible verses that were not like John 3.16. They just sang the song not having a clue where it came from, but they knew exactly where it came from when they wrote the song directly from chapter 3. So chapter 3 is a famous chapter. It's one of the most famous chapters in Ecclesiastes because of the song. And other bands have done it as well. And the repetitive nature, and they made the song sound really upbeat and exciting and, and just, you know, mesmerizing in how they put that song together. But they kind of missed the whole point. The whole point of these eight verses in the first parts of chapter 3 are not hard to understand. They're all very simple concepts that we're all very aware of, that we've all lived. We've all lived a time to be born and a time to die. Now, we've not lived that time to die, but we've known people who were born and died. He starts out with a big one. Everything like this is going to be happening to us. There's times and seasons for everything in life. And he just goes through those normal things that we experience uh, times of planting and, and um, plucking up, killing, healing, breaking, building, weeping, laughing, mourning, dancing, casting away, gathering, embracing, refraining, seeking, losing, keeping, casting, tearing, sowing, silence, speaking, love, hate, war, peace, the opposites. And we've experienced all of those things, but the point of this is seeing that while we master many of those little spots and moments and punctuated events in our life, we cannot, as hard as we try, cannot control the passing of time. We cannot. It does not matter how much wealth you have. It does not matter how much experience you have. It does not matter if you are the king of the world. You cannot add one more second to your day. You cannot add one more day to your life. You cannot change the fact that you grow old. As hard as you try to stop it, as fashionable as you try to buy the newest trends, as you try to do your hair up that way, as you try to exercise, as you try to eat right, try to do all the things to keep you young, the next day comes, and you're a day older. Next year comes, and you're a year older. You cannot change that fact. No one has control over the passing of time. And I think that's what Solomon is really getting at, is there's all these changes happening around, and you can't do anything about it. You can't control the passing of time and seasons and moments. And for each moment, when you do not have a worldly life view, but you acknowledge God and you trust in his son, Jesus Christ, as your Lord and Savior, you then notice 
that each moment, while it seems very routine and repetitive and unchangeable, God has at the heart of every one of those moments appointments. He has appointed every time and season and moment and second of your life. He's appointed it. He knows it. And it's not not there by mistake. And it is not part of your life because he's trying to punish you or hurt you or scold you or prove how powerful he is to you. He's using every second, moment, passage of time, season, change to accomplish something wonderful and beautiful in your life. He moves from that great moment to verse 9 through 15, this next section, which is also poetic. And he asks some questions that we've heard before, but he's asking them a little bit differently. He says, what gain has the worker from his toil? Another reason or another way of asking that is, uh, so you've worked eight hours today, what did you accomplish? You went to school, what did you accomplish? What is the end result of that accomplishment? And most people will answer, oh, I'm another day deeper in debt. No, okay, you earned money. You accomplished something. You went to the store, you went to the doctor, you got the car fixed, you took the dog to the groomer. I mean, lots of different things you accomplish from your toil, from your work and what your effort is. And most people will just simply list out, this is what my calendar said. My calendar said this, 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 and that's what I did today. But we are not like most people. We have one fundamental different change about our nature and character that the world does not have. And that's Christ. A new heart, a new nature, a new life. We have a new perspective of the repetitive toil of world events and life. We have a completely different perspective. We know that seeing that person on the street corner and handing him one of the care bags is not just an act that I check off on a calendar. There might be a moment of real ministry there where I learn the person's name and I pray for them. And I invest God's nature and character in that conversation. See, the believer looks at that differently. I have to wait in line. Is there someone I can talk to? Or maybe I don't want to talk to anybody. What can I pray about? Maybe you don't even want to pray. What verse did you read that morning that you can meditate upon? See, we can take every single moment, second event, stage of life, and we can return it back to God's glory and acknowledging his greatness in that moment, that second, that event, that life stage, that change. And he talks about that in these verses. So what gain has the worker for his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of men to be busy with. Solomon has seen it all. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Left to your own devices, without the Holy Spirit regenerating you and changing you and calling you and dragging you to faith, you know that there is a God. I mean, Scripture is very clear in Psalm 14 and in uh, Romans 1 that only a fool 
believes there is no God. In fact, no one is without excuse. They all know that there is a God. They just do not know by themselves how to get to him, how to fix the broken relationship. So they try to fix it by being good. They try to fix it by being generous and give to charities and donations. They try to fix it by being the best that they can be. But they can't fix it on their own. And so the answer to that is, while they know that there is this void of needing a higher power, something changed in us because of our sin, they don't know how to figure it out on their own. That's why God sent his son. That's why God has sent his word. That's why God has sent his spirit to indwell us, to lead us, teach us, and guide us in all of those things. But left to ourselves, we just have this wonderment of, there's got to be more to life than just getting up and working, doing all my calendar events. There's got to be more than just getting a good education. There's got to be more than just making the right investments. There's got to be more than finding the right husband or wife. There's got to be more than just raising a family. There's got to be more than retirement. There's got to be more out there. The world can't answer what the more is, and they keep seeking it. Some find it in drugs and alcohol. Some find it in sex. Some find it in pleasure. Some find it in... uh, just hedonistic activities where they let themselves, give themselves over to sin. Some people find that in stuff. Some people find it in sports. Some people find it in family. Not bad things, but in their perspective, they're not going to satisfy the soul's longing for what is this thing going on with God and me. He's put eternity in their hearts Yet, so they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. They cannot figure it out. So Solomon says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat, drink, and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. Interesting take on human philosophy that Solomon has says, after he has seen and experienced everything to a huge, huge extent in his life, not being constrained by wealth, he had, um, he had plenty of wealth to give over to his desires, and he did. But in the end, he goes, you know what? Without God, without Christ, without this relationship that is mended and healed, you know what man has at the end of the day? Eat, drink, Have a good time because basically that's all you're going to be able to get. And even that, as small as that is from a believer's perspective, it's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. And as silly as it sounds, it is a gift from God that people enjoy pizza. It's a gift. It is a gift from God that people enjoy pizza. Hatch chili. Oh, did I say hatch chili? Whoa. Put the knives down. Put the clubs, torches away. I mean Pueblo chili. I did that on purpose. (laughs) I'm just trying to get you guys. But it is 
a good, pleasurable thing that God has allowed people to enjoy music, to enjoy dance, to enjoy working out, to enjoy learning, to enjoy working, to enjoy earning money. It is a, it is a blessed thing to think that God has given us so many blessings and benevolence even to people who curse his name and hate him. He still allows them to enjoy what the day's labor may accomplish. Wow. That's not how I would treat my enemies. You know how I would treat my enemies? Same way you would. I'd get them. I would get them. I would turn every screw. I would make their lives miserable. The moment they were hot, I'd make them cold. The moment they were happy, I'd make them sad. I would get at them. But God, thankfully, is not like us. And he shows this benevolent, good grace, undeserved love, merit, and favor, even to those who are outside of his family by allowing them to enjoy drinking, eating, and having fun. Wow. God is so merciful, even to his enemies. He is kind beyond measure. It says in verse 14 in this same section about everything does have a real purpose, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. And that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks that which has been driven away. This is all Solomon's way of communicating to us that God's plan, his plan, although we do not know the intricate details of his plan, is well established. He's not making it up. He's not going with the flow and figuring it out how it's happening. He knows it. He knows it with absolute clarity. You see, because under the sun thinking and philosophy, this under the sun mentality, we are in the realm of meaninglessness. If all we have is the world philosophy and our own opinion and our own understanding, we are indeed under this philosophy of everything is meaningless, except with the life of the Christian in Christ, hidden in Christ, loving him, him loving us. These labors have a purpose. Now, we may not be able to see them, the ultimate end goal, but they are definitely there. In Romans 8, 28, one of my favorite verses and I can't believe I'm just going to mention this and go, go right on to the next verse because there is sermons of material in this. I have a, one single book made up of nine sermons from this one verse. So it can be done, not today. Paul says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Paul has a assurance, a surety, an absolute sense of, yes, this is true. And what is it? That all things, all things work for good. All things 
Tim, what about murder? What if someone murdered a friend of mine? How does that work together for good? You know what? That could be a whole sermon in and of itself. I can't answer the specifics, but I can know maybe God is calling you to forgiveness. Maybe God is calling you to compassion. Maybe God is calling you to a ministry. I have no idea the specifics, but I do know that all things mean all things, even if you're raped, even if you're robbed, even if your house burns down. I know that every event that occurs in our lives as a believer, God has decreed from all beginning of all time, this will accomplish my purpose, and it is going to be good. And I give you the classic example of death. Where my father died when I was five, and it created in me this hatred for God that you have never experienced to the degree that I did. I hated him. I knew he was real, and I knew this happened in my life, and I knew everyone telling me, Tim, we don't know why this happened, but it's for good. Somehow there's going to be good in this. And I hated that message. Hated it. But I would not be here today with the family that God has blessed me with, with the people in my lives that God has richly blessed me with, if that event never took place. Because that event humbled me before God. It broke me before God. It demolished my self-esteem and my self-worth and everything that I felt good about myself. It wiped it clean and said, you are bare before God. And he is a loving father. Will you run to his arms and be embraced in that love? Or will you be filled with hate for the rest of your life? God changed me. And part of that change throughout all of these years has brought me here today. And as hard as it would have been for that five-year-old to admit, as a 40-ish something person-ish Ish, 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 like 10 times ish. I can say with absolutely certainty, I would have wanted it no other way. No other way. Because it brought me humbly before a God and he showed me mercy, showed me his son's sacrifice and how much my angry little life meant to him. It meant everything to him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6 through 9, Peter says, remember, all things work together for good according to his purpose. Verse 6 of chapter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, oh, trials, so that your tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Through you, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with him. That is 
unexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith for the salvation of your souls. Read that a hundred times and realize that Peter is saying, you're going through trials, and yes, they're hard, but do you know what the end of those trials is? Rejoicing at the inexpressible joy at seeing Christ one day. It will wipe every one of those trials, that pains, that hurts, that repetitive toil, meaningless of life, it'll wipe it away. And you will behold your God as King and Lord, the Alpha and the Omega over all creation, and he will call to you, brother, son, daughter, sister, enjoy the holiness that surrounds you. And you will bow and you will worship from day one to the end of time. You will not remember one trial, one hurt, one sorrow, one pain, one suffering because you will be so filled with amazement at the glory and beauty and perfection of Jesus Christ that it will surround you for eternity. So do those trials, those pains, that repetitiveness of life have a purpose and a goal? Yes, it does. It'll bring us before the Holy King, the beginning and the end, in worship. Now, I had the rest of chapter 3 I wanted to accomplish today, but I would do a disservice to that rest of that chapter if I just blew through it right away. So we are going to end our message here and now. And... With that thought in our mind, I want the elders to come up. We're going to do communion. And with that thought in mind, I know that you have trials in your lives. I know that you have sufferings. I know that you have pains. I know you're facing the repetitiveness, repetitiveness of life. And at times, it just simply hurts. And it can be puzzling and confusing. And you can ask the question, why me? This is the moment to take all of those questions and doubts and not ignore it, but put it aside for the moment. And take a glimpse of what that revealed Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be like when he reveals himself to you face to face as the Savior of mankind. And in this sacrifice, in this celebration, in this table, in this communion, we acknowledge and join ourselves to that suffering and acknowledging that without Christ, we would be paying for our own sin. But because of Christ, he's offered up as a sacrifice on our behalf. So there's joy, there's sorrow, that it took his death, but there's joy that he's giving you the fruit of his death in celebration of life. I'm going to pray. The elders are going to distribute it. You're going to stay in your seat. And just so everyone knows, both the grape juice and the cracker that we use are gluten-free, so you are welcome to enjoy both. And uh, just remain in your seats. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of your son, as strange as that may sound, we rejoice that you gave his life 
for many and that we are counted among that number. Father, help us to face these trials of life without anger, without bitterness or regret. And may we face it knowing that you hold the future in your hand, that you have decreed that all things do have a purpose in our lives. And you have also said you're not going to answer every one of those questions we have, but you've answered the biggest one. How are we made right with you? And it's through your son. Thank you for his gift. Thank you for his sacrifice. And thank you for his resurrection. The hope that is in all of us. In your son's blessed name we pray. Amen.